You're listening to a TVO podcast. Hi, Pippa. Hi, Karina. So I have been wanting to do the word homeless on the show for actually quite a while, but it feels particularly relevant this year. Uh, We live in Toronto and the Toronto police have been in lots of cases uh, violently clearing encampments around the city. So it felt really important to spend a bit of time this season looking at the way that we talk about homelessness. Yeah, it feels like uh, the timing is really right in that sense. Yeah. But also because the words we use when we talk about homelessness are changing officially. We'll get into the reasons why later in the episode. But um, the 2020 Associated Press style book, which is the style guide that is used by mostly American journalists, Mm. uh, in 2020, they included an edit in the most recent edition around uh, wording around homelessness. Mm -hmm. And while they said that the word homeless is still acceptable as a term, the collective noun, the homeless, is dehumanizing. And their alternatives that they gave were people without homes or people without housing or homeless people. Just a side note, the Canadian press style book doesn't actually mention any wording around homelessness. Uh, And even outside of the style book, I think there's been this shift really over the past decade when you look into it towards new words and phrases, right? There's also words like houseless or unhoused or people experiencing homelessness. Yeah, there are a lot of these new alternatives being posed, which we're going to get into. But let's go back a bit first, because this is, of course, not the first time that the preferred wording has shifted. In fact, the AP Stylebook's 2020 change also included the official declaration that vagrant or derelict, uh, those words are considered disparaging, which (laughs) feels like a bit old-timey to declare now, um, but apparently bears repeating. Yeah, (laughs) those are pretty funny. Um, Along with vagrant and derelict, right, uh, there are a slew of other kind of colorful and offensive words that have become passe nowadays. We no longer use words like tramp or street person or beggar or bum, of course. Yeah, those are those are Charlie Chaplin levels of old timey. <laughs> yeah. It's weird to hear them. <laughs> uh And then there are other words, right, that we no longer use that kind of point more to the nomadic lifestyle. There's like vagabond or transient or itinerant or even hobo. Right. So hobo is, of course, offensive today if you were using it to describe a homeless person. Yeah. But the word hobo itself actually has a really long and storied history. And since the word homeless has basically no etymology worth mentioning, considering it just, I mean, like, it's obvious what it means. It means the lack of a home. Right. Um, I, I wanted to actually just take a detour and dig into the word hobo for a second. Great. Um, So etymologists can't really agree on the root of this word, other than that the term has been around since the 1890s and comes from the northwest of the U.S. And at this time, hobo meant a traveling worker, um, and it first referred to veterans looking for work after the Civil War. And then it became more commonplace during the Great Depression um, for obvious reasons. People were out of work, kind of traveling the countryside looking for work. Folk etymology is so fun. So I wanted to share a few theories on the roots of the word hobo. Okay. So some people think it's short for ho boy. 
Um, because a lot of these migrant workers would be working on farms with hoes. Perfect. And uh, Bill Bryson wrote in Made in America that it could be from hobo, like B-E-A-U, which mm. apparently was a common greeting among railway workers. And Bryson also wrote that it could be a short form of homeward bound, like hobo, the first two letters of those two words. And another theory has it as a shortening of homeless boy or homeless bohemian. So, so many options. Yeah, there are a lot of theories. Whatever the etymology, it's a word that's been around for a long time. Everyone agrees on that. And in some situations, it's not considered offensive. Like there's a national hobo convention in Iowa that gathers traveling <laughs> workers for a weekend in August. And it's been running since 1900. Um, so there's a really interesting subculture there and pride around the word in some circles. And there's also pride in it if you're in 2001 carrying a hobo bag. <laughs> That's right. Do you remember that fashion trend? Absolutely. <laughs> I never had a hobo bag and I lusted after one. I remember I wanted like a black leather hobo bag mm, so badly. I had one and I wore it with my um, glittery peasant skirt. Oh, perfect. That sounds like a what great a time. choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But of course, we don't use the word hobo, like you said, to, to refer to homeless people today. Yeah, no. So pivoting to the word homeless, one thing I found really interesting is that while the word homeless goes back to 1613, the concept of homelessness actually wasn't in common parlance in the mid-80s. Wow. David Holchansky, a professor at U of T who focuses on housing, he wrote a piece for the Toronto Star way back in 2010 that was called The Invention of Homelessness. He describes how we didn't use this word until Canada began slashing funding to social housing programs around 1984, and the federal government basically bowed out of funding or even regulating low-income housing throughout the 90s. The system then, you know, became less regulated, more driven by market forces. And he talks about how this term, homelessness, was conveniently abstract, right? It allows people to lump a lot of issues under one umbrella term. So it kind of gained prominence around the mid-80s moving forward. Yeah, and, and that umbrella term of homeless includes a lot of different circumstances. Mm. And this is the one big thing I took away from researching this subject. The spectrum of experiences we call homelessness is actually super broad. The Canadian Observatory on Homelessness actually divides the concept into four distinct categories. So one, there's unsheltered, and that includes people living in public spaces, squatting, living in cars, for example. Right, kind of the more like conventional definition. Yeah. And then there's emergency sheltered, which means they're in the shelter system. Mm -hmm. And then there's provisionally accommodated. So that might mean people who are in temporary housing, like motels or hostels, or they might be couch surfing. But also people who are incarcerated are in this bucket, as well as people living in reception centers for recent immigrants or refugees. The concept of people in prisons or in these centers are considered homeless under the definition, like, had just never occurred to me before. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about how many people live in impermanent housing yeah. in all of these different situations, right? And if they were kicked out, they'd have nowhere to go. Right. And in a lot of these cases, um, especially incarcerated people, they're let out of institutions and they'll just immediately become unsheltered or emergency sheltered. Right. 
And then the last category of those four is precariously housed. So people who have housing but are at risk of losing it. And that includes people who get evicted or are in unsafe housing or lack stability in their employment. Mm. So the word homeless, like, it really does cover a lot of ground. Yeah. But for a lot of people now, this term has fallen out of favor and we're looking for alternatives. I spoke with Diana Chan McNally. She's a training and engagement coordinator at the Toronto Drop-In Network about her own take on the term. I find it an incredibly stigmatizing word to use. People have a lot of different and quite negative associations with that word that often kind of speak to a person who is transient or even violent and who is someone to be avoided. And as someone who has actively been unhoused, uh, I don't feel that it applies to me. Uh, And I think generally it doesn't apply to pretty much anyone I've ever worked with. As you heard, Diana prefers the term unhoused to refer to her own experience. Uh, It's been a long time since I've actually been unhoused. Uh, It was when I was a teenager. I had a child quite young uh, when I was about 15 years old. And because of that and because of the kind of upbringing and cultural heritage I come from, uh, it was not okay. So I wasn't living at home for a period of time, and I was lucky in a lot of ways because I had a broad network of people who would take me in, I could couch surf. So I never ended up in the shelter system, and I never ended up on the street. So I think my experiences come with a lot of privilege, but it does give me a bit of perspective on what it is that people go through, uh, at least an inkling. So unhoused is one of the big alternatives to homeless that we've seen on the rise over the past, like, decade or so. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this term gets at a really important distinction, which is between homes and houses. Sure. Like, you can have a home that isn't a house Mm -hmm. or a house that doesn't feel like a home. Yeah. And in Toronto, there are a lot of people who are technically housed, but certainly wouldn't consider those places homes. I also spoke with Lorraine Lamb, an outreach worker at Sanctuary, which is a church community in Toronto that provides community to marginalized people in the city. And Lorraine told me about the realities for a lot of the people that she would call maybe underhoused or marginally housed in her community. There are many people I know who have signed leases, so they technically have housing. But when you go to their place, the places are subpar, you know, places with mold and like one bathroom for like 12 people in a rooming house, like cockroaches everywhere, like appliances falling off the walls. Those to me is is still not actually living in a home that is dignified or safe. You know, yes, people can have addresses to their names. People can sign leases, um, but it's still subpar housing. Right. The goal with housing is not just to technically put roofs over people's heads. The goal is, like Lorraine said, something dignified, something safe. Mm. And we throw around words like adequate housing or affordable housing or suitable housing. But there are official standards about what that looks like. I mean, adequate housing that can't have mold. It can't be in major need of repairs or be really damaged. Basically, like what Lorraine is describing there doesn't meet the standards of adequate housing. Exactly. And affordable housing is technically housing that doesn't cost in excess of 30 percent of pre-tax income, which <laughs> like it just like m- makes me laugh because I think nobody I know is spending 30 percent of their pre-tax income on their housing right now. Right. It's just like not the case for so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially in Toronto with like a high cost of living. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so we've talked about the difference between unhoused and homeless. Uh, but an even more crucial distinction that both of our guests mentioned to me is the difference between housing and shelter, or like unhoused versus unsheltered. Here's Diana again. You know, it's really interesting because shelters are absolutely 100% an institutional setting. They have rules and regulations that are in place that dictate what is appropriate behavior or conduct within that space in many ways. And it's not a prison, but it is institutional uh, like a prison happens to be. And we never make that mistake of suggesting that prison is the same as housing. In a shelter system, you are with people you don't know. Um, that can be very dangerous in lots of ways. Right. And when you think about the past year and a half, like yeah. COVID plays into this now, right? You're, you're, you'd you're be worried about getting sick, about having an outbreak in a shelter. Totally. And that really changes the meaning of shelter in unsheltered. Yeah, Totally. Shelter means it's like a respite, not a home. It could be something like a literal shelter or or a bus stop. But regardless, it's not housing. And I could imagine using these words almost like interchangeably without thinking. But both Lorraine and Diana pointed out that this has real consequences. Here's Lorraine. You know, I think it's interesting that we live in a context right now where the city of Toronto is mayor and powers that be sort of talk about clearing people from encampments and giving them shelter. And then they kind of use that term interchangeably with housing, which to me is problematic because shelter is not the same as housing. If they were the same thing, then I would challenge the mayor himself, like then go stay at a shelter, give up your address at One Bedford and and go stay at a shelter, right? But he wouldn't do that um, because he understands that staying in a shelter is not actually the same as staying at your own home. And so, If the general public is hearing that, you know, homeless people in encampments are getting housing after being cleared from the parks, then of course, why would we oppose that, right? But the reality is people are not (laughs) getting into housing after being evicted from the parks. They're just being moved and displaced elsewhere into other parks or into shelters. She's referring to statements that John Tory has made that use the word housing in place of the word shelter. Hmm. For example... After the eviction of Trinity Bellwood's encampment residence in June 2021, he said he approved of the dismantling of the encampments, and he said that residents would be moved to, quote, safer housing. When, in fact, they're moved into impermanent shelters. Yeah, for the most part. Diana also sees the way the city uses the word shelter and housing synonymously in kind of a similar way. I think it's used in a very strategic way, I'll be honest. I think that by conflating those two, the government can kind of perpetuate the idea that they've addressed homelessness. Well, they haven't, have they? Uh, If someone's living in a shelter, again, that's a transient space. It's not meant to be a forever space, although, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people, they live there for years, sometimes decades. I've seen it. Um, It is just a way of making homelessness uh, or folks who are unhoused significantly less visible. Um, I I don't want to sound too harsh, but it is like warehousing people. And by moving people indoors, even though it doesn't actually solve homelessness, uh, government can pretend like they did something proactive um, and they can hide the problem from the public view, um, which unfortunately for a lot of members of the public, that's good enough uh, for folks like myself, obviously, who again, have experienced being unhoused, uh, it's actually deeply offensive. 
Using these words imprecisely in like an everyday conversation is one thing, but in the context of a news conference, you kind of have to be precise. Yeah, definitely. This leads me to another one of those alternatives to homeless that we wanted to talk about, which is people experiencing homelessness. That's a big one. Yeah. And in fact, for the city of Toronto and lots of other cities in Canada, this is the preferred phrasing. Mm -hmm. We've talked about person-first language a ton on this show. Mm -hmm. And this is a a good example of person-first language that people actually don't always agree on. Right. Yeah. I mean, our guests even have complicated thoughts about this term. Uh, Diana, for one, said she appreciates the framing people experiencing homelessness. I think what is better about that is that we kind of prioritize people. Um, We preface by saying a person, which is to say that we are acknowledging the humanity of that individual first and foremost. Um, And I think it's a really good way of, again, kind of stressing that folks in these kinds of circumstances really are people. And that sadly gets lost quite a bit. Um, And people get stripped of their humanity in many, many different ways. And that's, of course, true. But Diana also mentioned that while the government or the media might use this framing, it's not necessarily used by people who are experiencing homelessness themselves, right? No, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Yeah. And Lorraine is not as big of a fan of this framing. I personally know some people who are homeless who really don't like that term. Because, you know, homelessness is not like an experience, you know, like, Homelessness is a reality, and I think when we say people experiencing homelessness as a term, it centers the problem on the person, rather than focusing on the larger context and the larger reality of why this person is homeless in the first place. I can see both sides. Like, it's true that we need to center the fact that we're talking about people first, right? Um, And I think the intention behind using person-first language is is probably good. Mm -hmm. But it also does introduce a bit of a passive voice, right? Especially when that framing is used by a government who has power to change that experience. Yeah. It's sort of like they're saying um, these people are experiencing this thing. It has nothing to do with policy or evictions or funding. It's just an experience that they're having. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's fair to be critical and kind of like alert to the way that a city uses and chooses these words. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the in-group terminology, like the words that the group is using to self-identify, of course, some of these options, like people experiencing homelessness, might not, (laughs) they might not sound right in normal day-to-day conversation. Mm -hmm. Lorraine mentioned that a lot of the time as our vocabulary evolves as a society, it's not always evolving to serve the group themselves. I feel like we're just trying to make people who are not homeless more comfortable in talking about homelessness. Because I I think sometimes in my experience, there's a bit of a guilt and almost a little bit of pity, perhaps, in terms of talking about realities of homelessness and like, you know, people themselves aren't. And so maybe if we make it sound better, then we'll feel better about it. And I think sometimes in the hard work of, of justice work and change, We want to try to make the revolution and the changes a little bit more comfortable for people who are uncomfortable. But I'm not actually sure that that's what gets about change. I think discomfort can be good. Um, I think people that I know who are homeless themselves, they want to just kind of say, like, this is just how it is. So let's not try to fancy up the language to try to make it more palatable because the reality is not, like, palatable. It's not ideal. (laughs) 
Okay, so we've covered a bunch of the alternatives to homeless, like unhoused and unsheltered and people experiencing homelessness. And I think with any term like this, there will be complexity and disagreements on how the words strike people. Yeah. Point being that people who are unhoused or homeless or whatever the word is that we're going to use, they aren't homogenous. I think like the one thing that most of these experiences have in common is the policies that have exacerbated them, as Lorraine pointed out. I think sometimes we talk about like the homelessness crisis or whatnot, but I, I actually think it's about the affordability crisis. Like people are homeless because homes and housing is so unaffordable in our city. To bring us back to where we started, Lorraine mentioned to me that while she and many of the homeless folks that she works with use that term, homeless, it's not a fit for their Indigenous friends and colleagues. In the words of the founders of Toronto Indigenous Harm Reduction, Indigenous people cannot be homeless on their own homelands. Yeah, that's a that's a really, it seems so obvious, but yeah. yeah. In fact, the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness has developed a definition of Indigenous homelessness that is distinct from what they call the colonialist definition of homelessness. Right. So this term like includes... An acknowledgement of the historic displacement of Indigenous people from their homelands, right? A geographic or spiritual disconnection, and even factors around the climate. For some people whose lifestyles rely on a relationship to the land or water or animals, climate change can also serve as a catalyst to homelessness. Yeah, of course. And with that said, this episode was recorded on the traditional territories of many nations, including the Wendat, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. And I think we can leave it there. Thanks for listening. 